One of the gifts of not growing up in a, or of growing up in a non-church going household was that I missed out on some of the majorly weird things my evangelical friends would take for granted. So I was a devoted fan of Harry Potter before anyone had a chance to warn me of the satanic influences inherent in a book about magic, right? My dad didn't like Dungeons and Dragons, but not because he thought it would groom his impressionable young daughter for the occult. He just thought it was a ridiculously long and arduous game. And I had no idea about the depth and ferocity of a thing called the satanic panic in the 1980s and 90s. I'm sure those of you a certain, of a certain age remember this, even if you weren't in the grip of an evangelical subculture. The, sa- the satanic panic was the belief that the United States had been infiltrated by large numbers of Satanists, demon worshipers, who practiced the dark arts and conspired to molest children and sacrifice babies on altars. The kicker was that this was all supposedly being done by the nice, unassuming couple next door. You'd never know that about the secret goat's blood baths that they were having in their pentagram-filled basement in the middle of the night. The other kicker to this widespread cultural phenomenon where folks suspected Satanism to be the underlying force behind pop music and RPGs was that it came to be verifiably untrue. Scores of people were put on trial, lost their livelihoods in the 1990s because of the collective panic that gripped the community around them. Now, and as I've looked back on this and read about it, it reminds me a lot of the Salem witch trials. The way a sort of paranoid expectation about the secret lives of your neighbors can take hold. It perversely illustrates the lengths that humans have been willing to go to make our worst nightmares true. The nightmares aren't true but we make them so. It's not just witchcraft that I'm talking about here. This is also the way lynchings and racism have worked. It was the way the fears about, you know, the gay agenda worked. It's the way QAnon hooks people. What can make you feel more absolutely righteous than being brought into a fight against secret pedophiles, rapists, or an underground cabal of demon worshipers with secret designs on forming your child's thoughts. The nightmares aren't true, but we make them so. When paranoid delusional realities are proven in time to have zero basis in fact, it means that a lot of people in some way wanted these things to be true. The question is, what are we getting out of that? Why do we want it? That's the first thing a good therapist will ask you about a behavior that's destructive that you repeat. It's a good question, whether for individuals or for societies. If the legion of the human race was sat down on a therapist's couch, having told all these stories about 
in history about how we suspect real demons to be possessing our neighbors, the general diagnosis, what we're getting out of it, is scapegoat theory. Now, of course, you have all guessed by now that I'm about to take a dive into the story of the Gerasen demoniac in our gospel today. We have many years left together to talk about just what demon possession meant at the time, how they understood it, what it means for us today. We'll have plenty of opportunity to, to distinguish this later from mental illness. Today, though, I want to focus in on the idea that the problem with our garrison demoniac today ended up not being demons. The problem was us. Here are the parallels in this story. There once was a man who lived bearing the demons of existence. He had too many of them to name. Because of this, he was forced to live in a nightmare existence in a graveyard. Who put him there? Very nice people would pass him by and say things like, There but for the grace of God go I. When the Gerasene demoniac met Jesus, something happened. For the first time, someone was able to see past the projections of a broken society, of a broken man, and see him as a full human. Jesus restored him to a place in the community. And you know the point of the story that we read today? No one was happy about it. There was an economic cost for one thing, the loss of an entire herd of swine, and I very much doubt any successful businessman thought the restoration of such a pitiful life was worth the trade of his profits. But there was another cost, too, one that no one could exactly name. What do you do when you lose your scapegoat? A scapegoat, the designated outsider, is the one who bears the demons of society. Everyone everyone agrees on that. And when a person or a type of person is chosen to bear these demons, then everyone else gets to feel a little bit better about themselves. What can be more righteous than feeling yourself set against the forces of evil? In in person. When we focus on the monsters in others, we have no need to look inward at ourselves. It's all on someone else. That's why it works for us. It doesn't take much hypothesizing on human behavior to make a good guess on what this outcast's life was like after Jesus' miracle, after Jesus left town. I mean, if you had to guess, people found another way to keep him on the outside. If not in the graveyard, then at least out of the good neighborhoods, through redlining, redistricting, rezoning, not in my backyard. Jesus has no problem rehabilitating the man to be fit for society. 
but the man knows what's ahead of him. He asks Jesus to let him leave with him. There really isn't anything for him here. Jesus says about the most heartbreaking thing I've ever heard him say. Stay. Do not let yourself be cast out any longer. To leave means you accept the role of the scapegoat and it continues on. Stay and proclaim what God has done for you. How God sees you. The dangerous thing when we meet these bizarre stories of demonic possession in the Bible is that we want to think that they are not about us. They are. They ask us to notice who we blame and cut out and send away to the tombs of our lives. They ask us to notice who we are comparing ourselves to when we feel that sense of lip-smacking righteousness. Jesus can heal the scapegoat, no problem. Our panic is verifiably untrue. What will we do then when we are asked to face the demons in ourselves? Jesus spends a lot of his ministry hanging out with folks like this man, people on the fringes, noticing their humanity, maybe the only one who does, and bringing them back into the circle. I think this is partly because he was preparing to live out this role in himself, but in the ultimate sense. The one carrying our blame would become the source of our healing. Even now, he stays with you, asking you to see what only God can heal.